Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 91. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast to feature interviews about Metallica. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Phil Towell, the man who Lars Ulrich says saved Metallica. Back in January of 2004, when I worked as a reporter for MTV News, I was sent to the Sundance Film Festival to interview (laughs) Haley Duff, the sister of Hilary Duff, for a piece that would run during MTV's TRL, introducing Haley Duff to the world. Uh, She was there as part of a small independent film. That independent film turned out to be Napoleon Dynamite. But the thing that I was most excited about, other than attending Sundance for the first time in my life, was word that there was a Metallica documentary at Sundance that year. I scrambled and pushed, got my way into the screening of Some Kind of Monster, uh, one very cold morning in Park City, Utah, sat riveted watching that thing for the first time this searing intimate deep profound look inside and under the hood and you know in the very souls of the guys in metallica and of course this character in the film phil towel uh, what a presence and you know we all know the glorious sweaters And we all know and saw uh, what an effect he had on those relationships and in really digging in and uh, exposing so many things that had been pushed down to the surface as things will tend to be throughout the course of a long professional, personal relationship, let alone a relationship with so much responsibility and so many things happening at such a scale as it does within Metallica. I had an opportunity later that day, I believe, in Park City to attend a press conference that Metallica did for the documentary. The band was, I believe, in Hawaii, and there was a big video screen projecting them via satellite, and the press, we all sat in this little tent in the snow, And each of us got up and I believe had one question. My question was about the scene between Lars and Dave Mustaine. Uh, Longtime listeners of this podcast will know, of course, that I'm also a massive Megadeth fan and that Megadeth is the band that actually got me into metal. And remember, no one had really seen this movie yet. And that scene between Lars and and Dave was, uh, you know, phenomenal and, and was fresh. I'd just seen it so I got to ask Lars a a little bit about that and I also asked James to reflect on it a little bit uh, given that he wasn't present for it Uh, if you own the blu-ray dvd of some kind of monster and the special features that press conference is actually included I believe it's also on YouTube I don't think that there's a camera on me but if you're (laughs) feeling adventurous and want to dig through there uh, you can ask you can hear me asking that question back in 2004. All Metallica fans know about some kind of monster, know about St. Anger, and by extension know about Phil Tell. I did this interview with Phil in January of 2021, 
however many years to the date that is from seeing some kind of monster for the first time in January 2004, 17 years. You know, I've been a professional journalist now, air quotes, for over 20 years. And, gosh, more than 20 years, almost 25 years, I guess. This is one of the more raw and personal conversations on my end that I've had the opportunity to have. And I just figured, you know, if I'm going to talk to Phil Tell, I'm going to go in uh, with my guard down and be ready to just dig in. Because what this guy does, regardless of your opinions on talk therapy, uh, performance coaching, which I believe is specifically what he does, uh, it's it's incredible. Um, this, this conversation was uh, boundlessly informative. Uh, exploratory, transformative even <laughs> for me. Uh, you know, as much as I am out there having conversations, interviewing people who create things that uh, affect me in, in different ways, both profound and, and casual, I'm a pretty private person when it comes to my emotional life, my inner life, uh, my childhood, personal traumas and things like that. And there's something about Phil that you just start spilling. And as you'll hear in this podcast, uh, he he uh, very specifically directs me not to edit any of that stuff out. And it's funny to be recording this intro right now before uh, this episode. Uh, you know, I'm recording the intro now a couple months after having had the conversation because I received an email. You know, the vast majority of the feedback that I get, uh, you know, the reviews in Apple Podcasts, which of course, please, please leave a five-star rating and write a nice review. You know, the vast majority is overwhelmingly positive, but I did receive a, a pretty negative email uh, to one of my email addresses. I actually didn't see it for a long time because it's an email address I don't really check often. Uh, and it was essentially someone saying, you know, look, I like your show, but there's too much you. Uh, we want to hear the guests. We don't want to hear your stories. We don't want to hear about you. We want more, more of the guests, less of you. And I understand that criticism and I try to take all criticism to heart, constructive and otherwise. But, you know, <laughs> I've been in plenty of situations, again, having been a reporter for 25 years, where I ask two or three very short questions and get very long answers, and that's the setup, and that's the format, and that's a certain type of thing. This is a podcast, and one of the great things about the podcast platform, podcasting as a vehicle, is the ability to have extended conversations. And look, right or wrong... My interview style, the conversations that I have with people, it gets really personal. And I feel like establishing some trust and a, and a connection and a vibe conversationally ultimately serves to get better quote unquote content from your guest because they feel more comfortable with you and they start talking. And you have things to talk about that are beyond, hey, how's the tour going? Uh, any, any crazy stories from the road? Uh, what was it like working with so-and-so? And there, you know what, there's plenty of places for that stuff out there. So as much as I understand where this person was coming from, listening back to this conversation with Phil today uh, in anticipation of recording this intro, it was great to hear him say, nah, man, like this is, <laughs> without him knowing that that was a criticism, right? Uh, and that criticism, in fact, coming later after I had spoken to him. Because I'm listening to this thinking, man, the guy who wrote me that email is really going to hate this episode because I'm, I'm doing most of the talking for the first few minutes. 
And then you'll hear Phil jump in and say, don't edit any of this out, which I was planning to. Uh, and for them, for him to sort of validate uh, my style in the first place. And it's making me a little emotional right now as I'm talking about it, to be totally honest. Because this is what I do. This is who I am. This Of, of all the different things, you know, I manage artists. I'm a writer. I had a, a book with a, one of my best friends come out late last year. I'm working on another book with another friend right now. You know, I'm a parent. Uh, there's all kinds of things in my life that I do that I enjoy. And really at the core of it are these conversations. And that's what led me down the career path that I've chosen, the life path that I've chosen, is I love digging in and, and learning about people and sharing stories. And part of that is an exchange. Again, it's just my opinion. Different people have <laughs> different views on this. I like listening to Mark Maron's podcast or... How did this get made? Which I guess yeah, it's a little different because it's not so guest driven, but you know, take your pick, Pete Holmes. Uh, there are a lot of podcasters out there. Uh, Anna Marie Cox. I like learning about them through the course of hearing them chatting with these guests and, and you, you get this comfort with the interviewer. And it's sort of like you're, I don't know, you're teaming up with that person or something as a listener when they're engaging in these conversations with these other folks. And I want to hear their stories too. That's why I'm listening to this particular guest on that particular podcast, as opposed to listening to that guest in any number of other places where I could find them doing press for whatever they're promoting in that given time. So, wow, I didn't plan on talking about any of this in this intro. And generally these intros are pretty short and I'm just like, here's the guest, here's who they are, here's what they've done. Check out Speaking Destroy on social media. Follow me on social media. But um, yeah, feels good to say this and get this out there. So Phil Tao, the man who saved Metallica in the film, Some Kind of Monster. Phil's background as a performance coach uh, is proactive psychological strategy that facilitates making your best better. Phil has worked with Dick Vermeil. If you're a big sports guy, I may have mispronounced that and or, or sports girl and you might be angrily shaking your fist in your car as you're listening right now and I apologize but I can tell you that Dick Vermeil was a Super Bowl winning coach with the St. Louis Rams now the Los Angeles Rams I do know that uh, he's also worked with Bill Romanowski professional athlete he's worked with Rascal Flats Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave and of course Metallica so here it is my conversation with the great Phil Tao. This is Speak and Destroy.
Well, I am extremely excited and thankful and grateful and happy to have you on here. And I mean, I feel like um, almost underqualified to be telling, to be the guy telling you this, but it's a very open (laughs) space to, uh, you know. Well, I love that because conversation, I'm often when I'm talking with people that I'm working and clients I'm working with, it's all conversational, really, because in any given moment, we will reveal whatever we need, we're here to reveal, right? And in a conversation, it, I, I love the um, openness, open-endedness of that, as you can tell right now, right? Yeah. So, so we're, we're, that's going to be great. I mean, we, let's go. Let's just do yeah. this, whatever, whatever your heart wants to open up with. Or- I host a Q&A series at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood, where it's a guest and myself, I call it inside the actor studio for bands or it's a, it's a band person and myself. Yeah. And and we chat for about an hour, hour and a half. And then we take some audience questions and they have a nice little theater there. that seats about 500. It's a mix of students and, and fans from the public. And uh, yeah, I've had Rob Halford there, uh, Tony Iommi, um, uh, Jesse J, the pop artist, uh, Brendan Urie from panic at the disco, a lot of great guests. But my, my point in bringing that up is that, uh, rather than call it the interview series, uh, we call it the conversation series because uh, that's kind of the attitude, right? Because it's uh, it just gets so stiff when uh, even even some of the best journalists out there, when they've got their note cards and they don't really wander off of their predetermined set of questions or when you see someone's answering the question and you see an interviewer who's really just waiting you know, preparing to ask the next question as opposed to actively listening. And, uh, you know, you, you, the guest says something that in the audience, you're going, why aren't you following up on that thread that they just tossed out to you, you know? So um, the, it really made the podcast space uh, for my particular interests and, and interview style over the last 20 something years it made it great because, you know, for a long time I was doing uh, press junkets, movie press junkets. And that's where you, go and sit in a room with a movie star and you get four minutes and you are one of 50 journalists that's coming in and out of that room that afternoon, each for five to 10 minutes at a time. And the podcast spaces, you know, just couldn't be any more different than that. So I'm very appreciative of it. What you triggered was, um, was it Notting Hill when the, uh, where, Hugh Grant was oh yeah with horse and hound or whatever yeah <laughs> right yeah <laughs> right um, yeah yeah and, and of course I've been with with uh, some of the people I've worked with I've been in those kind of moments uh, uh-huh. or, or either in in them or behind the scenes with them and it's it's just a it's a press junket period you know and it's yeah. just not it's not cool there's a, there's a film uh, I think it's America's Sweethearts John Cusack. And maybe Julia Roberts, where it's it, it it satirizes the whole press junket environment. And hey, I've you know I've had great experiences there, and I I, I always saw it as a challenge. Uh, you know, I I would often think to myself, okay, what question is this person answering fifty times today? And my icebreaker would often be to go in, ask that question, and then when they got half a sentence into their answer, cut them off and go, oh, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to ask you that. How many times you answered that today? And then it kind of, you know, shakes right. them out of the, the robot mode and they laugh and they go, oh man, I've been answering that question all day. All right, well, what do you got for me? And then try to like you know, it. make it a little different. Um, 
and and that that of course talking about films and 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 promoting films and all of that of course having you on a metallica themed podcast uh some kind of monster is going to be a, a big point of conversation but before we get there uh, as someone who um is obviously such a, a massive fan of the band uh, you know i just want to say how appreciative i am and this is a sentiment that lars as recently as an interview with rolling stone just a few months ago had expressed um you saved the band the work that you did the uh the, just your whole process, your methodology, your personality, your training, all of that uh, to thus, you know, the empty can rattles the most. So for any negativity that's out there, overwhelming positivity, the silent majority of the fans where we saw that movie and we saw the crisis the band was in and the, the way that you um, helped uh, enable and engineer uh, healing to happen. And, and gosh, another couple of decades now uh, of Metallica that that otherwise uh, certainly would not have happened or not have happened in the same way. So I just want to express gratitude for so that. Much. I really right appreciate that, Ryan. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me, especially because you are someone who's so knowledgeable about what goes on with bands and knowledgeable about that, that particular genre. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, would, I would just say what I what I've said before. Uh, it, this is not 50 times, but I've said before, like um, <laughs> that, you know, and obviously the band saved itself and I'm not trying to be modest about it. Um, it was a part, it was a, an exciting once in a lifetime experience to be able to be a part of that process, change the way that I do my work um, and um, move me out of the office, for example, into a place on, on site where there's much less opportunity to sanitize mm. and much more opportunity for authenticity. So mm. um, it was, um, you know, uh, it's great. And thank you. And, and Lars, I, I, you know, thanked him for his kind um, recent comments and appreciate that much. It is, a, it is a, it is a process, a joint process, just like these minutes we have together. Mm. And I'm grateful to be here with you. Oh, so, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so I would like to go, you know, way prior to when we, the world first met you and some kind of monster. And I wanted to ask sort of what got you interested in this line of work to begin with and what, what seeds were maybe there from your own past that at some point you realized this is, this is something I'm interested in. And then that next step, you know, this is often something I ask musicians, right? Like, what was the first music you fell in love with? And, and right. at what point did you know this was something not only that you love, but something you needed to actively participate in? Um, so for your particular line of work, I would, Great I would question. be very curious about the same thing. Well, so I think that the, the truth, and I've just got, I've sort of revisited this, or maybe visited it for the first time recently, but it, it makes good sense to, to start when, uh, as a kid, in my own family with a younger brother who couldn't speak until he was five. Um, he's now a great orator, no surprise with that. Um, and he, uh, but he had trouble, um, you know, asthma, he had a lot of physical challenges. And so mom and dad, but mom especially was attending to him. He's my only sibling. And uh, I became uh, a, a co-helper, if you will. That, that, and, and, and soon I learned in my life 
the rewards that come with the healthy rewards that come with co with being a helper, uh, which I still exercise, and the unhealthy parts of that, which are that I've had to work with over the course of the year, which are I define myself by helping. And if I don't, if I help someone, I'm okay. If I don't help someone, I'm not okay. Um, and so part of the the ego part of me would, uh, you know, when I'm not when would define my success by making sure that I was acknowledged as my mother's little helper uh, mm -hmm. or not to be confused with the song. Right. But, it, but, it, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the whole thing I think began there and then to get girlfriends, this is part of the ego thing to get girlfriends. I would be, as I grew older, I was the one that would be the therapist for them. The psychotherapist. I didn't know it at the time, but I just knew that by being empathic and sensitive and helping them with whatever the problems are, they would like me because I didn't feel I was likable by myself on my own merits. So that's the, that's the part of me that's still processing that and healing that. Mm. There was also the part of me that really, really loved being able to, you know, you do, you help people. Every time you have somebody on your show, you were offering them the catharsis. You were offering them opportunity to, to self-reflect. You are a therapist in your own way or a coach in your own way, okay? And you know the satisfaction you get from asking the questions that you get this kind, when you get this kind of response, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going, been going on throughout my whole life. So no surprise I would be doing some, something like this as a career. And originally it was doing as a, as a psychotherapist when I got formally trained. And then as I uh, had an epiphany while running one day, as I was shifting from psychotherapy to what I wanted to call performance coaching, um, I uh, had a, I, I, and I, and I think I've said this on one of the, one of the, uh, the um, interviews that I've had before, but it's like, I, I had a, I was running and I asked the universe, I said, so what's the difference between performance coaching and psychotherapy? Which and, was what I was about to ask you. So <laughs> Yeah, right. And, yeah. And, and what came back yeah. to me was so much more powerful than my mind could conjure up. So it had to come from soul and it had to come to divinely. The voice, and I heard a voice saying, you used to work with, their, with people's nightmares. Now you work with their dreams. Wow. Wow. I, every time I say that, I mean, it's like, I, Ryan, if what happens with me is what I just feel that it's so profound and I wouldn't have thought that. So there's a, you know, that also tunes me into the, the, the recognition, of course, that there is a higher power out there and, and, or in here. Mm -hmm. And so it, throughout my life, I've had opportunities to be of help. Uh, I've had opportunities where I've done too much help or I've, or I've not been, I've been helping for myself as opposed to helping, helping people, right. As a whole, as opposed to helping people. I struck by a number of things that, as you said, I said something that sparked something with you and you said something Great. that sparked Thank something you. with Thank me. Good. Yeah. I, my own, and it's funny cause this doesn't come, this kind of stuff doesn't come up in this uh, format very often, if, if ever, but uh, my own childhood, uh, my, my parents divorced when I was four years old. Didn't see my dad again until I was 11. And my mom raised my brother and I as a single mom on a secretary salary in, in Indiana 
while uh, struggling with lupus, which um, was they still don't they still know little about it. But at the time, it was a total mystery. This was the you know 70s and 80s, and uh, she passed away from lupus related um, kidney failure uh, when I was uh, about 11 years old. Oh, I'm so sorry. And so, but it's hearing you talk about, you know, the mother's little helper and the validation from that, you know, my, my older brother, uh, were five years apart. So when our mom was sickest uh, and she was doing home dialysis for a while and, uh, until that didn't work any longer. And then we were going to dialysis places. My brother was in, in, you know, this is no value judgment on him, but he was a teenager. So he was off living teenage life and he had his friends and he was playing in bands and smoking cigarettes and getting in trouble and being a 16 year old in the eighties. Um, I'm an elementary schooler. Uh, so I'm with my mom 24 seven, wow. you know, and, and uh, helping her change out home dialysis bags and wheeling the IV around in our little apartment and that sort of thing. So uh, the the glass half full side of that is that, and this is something that I learned in in talk therapy in my forties, <laughs> was right was that uh, my mom uh, treated me as a confidant. So you know my dad's out of the picture. She didn't have a boyfriend. The teenage son is out and about. So as an elementary schooler, I'm having very adult conversations with her in terms of life and meaning and uh struggles and and things going on at her job and things with friends and you know whatever uh and as i learned as an adult that was of great benefit to me in the sense that i uh, my mom was very creative and she was into painting and she was into music and a lot of things being treated like an adult as an elementary schooler i think contributed to who i became as a person in very positive ways but i also learned later in life um the downsides of that too <laughs> and how it uh you know and, and especially losing that kind of connection with a parent um going from that so immersive and so uh, sort of charging ahead several steps in my emotional development to then coming that coming to a screeching halt um and going to live with my dad who had last known me when I was four. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, so go, being with a mom who's, who's talking to me like I'm 20 to being with a dad who's talking to me like I'm four. Um, and just the way that that, yeah, as you said, the, exactly listening to you, I identify with that so much with um, learning that sort of caretaker, caregiver, nurturing, um, enabling in some cases, side in the way that that gosh yeah and that's not even getting into issues with abandonment and intimacy and all that sort of stuff of course right just watching all that play out subsequently in in my relationships uh with romantic partners with friends in you know professionally and gosh this is a whole bunch way too much about me probably but a whole bunch that that i'm saying here is tied into as you said the um, rewards that I get from what I've ended up doing as a profession. And I remember when I was first a uh, reporter at MTV News, 
um, I worked with uh, a colleague who had the exact same job I did, essentially, who was an actor and uh, and went on to be an actor. Um, and his role as an MTV News reporter was being on TV. And again, not a value judgment on that. I certainly had my punk rock views on it 20 years ago. But, um, but for me, it was, I remember vividly having a conversation with someone where they said, well, are you... Uh, you know, don't you want to be famous or aren't you doing this stuff to be famous? And, and it was such a binary choice between you're against being famous or you're purely seeking fame. And I saw it more as this middle path where I was like, no, no, no. I just want someone to, and this is what you said that resonated with me so much. I just want someone to come up and say, man, that was a great question. You know, what a great interview. What a great, uh, yeah, yeah. what a great something that you facilitated for someone else. And, uh, and yeah, in positive and negative ways, getting validation from how much did my involvement in something help or hurt it. Uh, so anyway, yeah, there's a, a, a big mess of stuff I just dropped on you. Wait, 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 don't, do not edit this out. Okay, please. Okay. And thanks for the gift. You could already and tell I, that I was going to. <laughs> yeah, well, because I mean, yeah, uh, yes, but this is, this is exactly what you and I are, are co-creating right now. And an audience that listens to this gets a chance to experience you in this inti intimate way that they wouldn't necessarily be able to you know, have an opportunity to do. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm just saying it to all of you who are listening for Ryan to be able to share this about himself and his story. We all have our stories and you all out there have your stories. And, um, and I, I hope that you are also giving yourself the opportunity to, to talk with people about who you are so that you could hear yourselves process out loud. And when you hear yourself process out loud, learn some things even more about yourself and, and realign with, with, with where, where you're going in life. So this is a great gift. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing for you to do to share that and for you to riff off of me. That just touches me. I mean, I, I, I'm feeling it physiologically. Thank you so much for that. that is there, the, is there that something, the thing, yeah. yeah, is there something that you pull out of this? You pull the number of things out, but is there something that you reflect upon that you want to explore some more either with a question with me or you want to amplify. I love the, the transformation you talked about uh, your inciting incident as it were, and in the transition from psychoanalysis to uh, what you went on to do the, the moment where you said uh, helping people with their nightmares versus helping people with their dreams. Cause that's something I've struggled with in life as I've gotten older and, and, gotten in a much better place with is realizing how much of my life I was letting uh, tragedies define me, right? Like feeling like a set of circumstances and things that had happened to me or things I had experienced that those were what made me who I was. And that, that was the the hunger and the art and all the, the things that I love and the people I gravitated to that was all driven by this like big mess of, of flaws and, and wow, problems yeah. and, and to then turning it around. And, and instead of, I feel like so much of my identity for such a long time was wrapped up in the things that I opposed as opposed to now as an adult, my identity being defined by the things that I love, the things that I endorse and yeah. want to support and want to put out there. So that's what I heard when you said nightmares. Um, 
versus dreams. And I'd love for you to expand on that. Well, I, I, you know, you just did. Okay. You just expanded on that. And uh, what you did was you strike me, you know, struck me when you said love, because that's, that's the only truth on this planet anyway. And the rest is, is more illusory and we get lost. I get lost in through my fears and insecurities. I get lost in, in being oppositional. I mean, yeah. we all go through re rebellious periods and stuff like that. But my mission at this particular point in time, because I've clarified myself as I go, as I evolve, is to, to author love or co-author love and to really come out in the open and say it like this. I mean, I don't say this enough, okay? And to be able to, to, to listen to you and, and, and admire you for how you've wrestled honestly with yourself and made adjustments on a script that would call for you to be cynical the rest of your life because of some of the history that you've wrestled with it on surface, nobody should have to go through. Okay, you went through some real trauma that, that is often grist for the therapeutic mill. The difference between how I would have approached it in the past and how I approach it now is more in line with you. That is every bad thing that has happened to me and I've, and I've created or co-created, I'm beginning to see, and I've, it's been a gradual thing, but I'm beginning to incorporate into what is beautiful about that that, I, that has helped me evolve as a person, mm. which is, you're, already a, you're already doing that, man. And, and that, Ryan, that's, 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 that is incomparable and that is so profound um, that that kind of missionary approach you have is it suggests that that your missionary work is in the form that you're doing it is that of somebody who's helping people open to their love, your love of them as you ask the question, because you're asking questions not to find, dig up dirt. You're asking questions out of loving curiosity. And the person feels that. I feel it. So when you're asking that, it allows me to feel uh, not, not just permission, but it encourages me to share whatever is intimate about what, you, what you're looking for and an audience to be able to plug in at, at a different level. And I, I got really I, I, I to tell you, hearing that is, <laughs> and this is something that I almost never say, is, uh, is making me emotional. That's because, that's, uh, I, I mean, you've just... <laughs> you've hit upon the, the reason to etra of, of why and how I, I do what I do and, and, and put it so succinctly and, and beautifully. That's, um, thank you. That's it, thank man. That's, that's the thing right there. And, and, uh, you know, I think the stuff we're talking about, and as you said, the nightmares versus dreams, uh, it's becoming like a real a theme here. That's the love of Metallica. That's where I discovered Metallica at a, at a point in life as a teenager when it was a beacon uh, that stood in opposition of so many things that I was against, right? Whether that's in, the broad, in broad terms, authority and, uh, you know, conformity and those sort of things we associate with punk or hip hop or a lot of these, these subcultures, but, but also, you know, these are the things that the people I reject love and they they'll never, they'll never understand something like Metallica. This is mine. 
you know this is this is this is this is ours and this is different from them and to see that transform both in watching the band as a fan and the bravery and courage that it took for them to put that film out into the world um and understanding now when when Hatfield gets up there and and says uh, you know are you alive out there how does it feel to be alive and, and this sort of yeah, and they're beautiful. This, this, yeah, this positivity <laughs> that comes out of this, and, yeah. and it's, it, it's something that, uh, if you're not immersed in whether it's it's horror films or it's gangster rap or it's death metal or it's you know folks who are outside of these subcultures don't understand from the outside how celebratory this stuff can be. Yeah. You know how much, uh, you know, of course. Um, Freddy Krueger is a horrific monster uh, and how can someone watch a Nightmare on Elm Street movie and be thrilled by inventive ways that Freddy is killing people and I think a lot of that in in the not to say that there aren't aberrations but I think most of us who are enjoying stuff like that or enjoying Metallica songs it's because we are chasing that that dream side not to make a Freddy Krueger pun with dreams and nightmares, but, but, but take, but taking this yeah, nightmarish stuff and, yeah. and transforming it into something. You know what? That's right. Happy, so, you know, know not to, now we gotta, we gotta talk to our audience out there. Hey, you mm. guys, all of you out there, look, those of you who think we're going soft on metal or something, right? <laughs> I mean, look, but, but I want to say that metal is as another way of Ryan is putting it, is we attach ourselves to vo- to people who can voice what we're feeling inside, mm. right? That's no mm. that's no secret. So to be able to have Metallica speak, you know, it's yes, some of it's rebellion or it comes across as rebellion against authority. Um, my, you know, friend, my Rage Against the Machine was was mm. notorious for that too, and I you know, just, but it's also a way of of offering. Um, uh, a cohort, a collaborative, become part of, of of somebody who is thinking like I'm thinking, and therefore I, I'm I'm not alone. I'm, I'm I'm I can I can love and be loved in this kind of setting. So, but metal is on one hand very harsh and a, a, appears to be the opposite of love in some respects, but it's all about love. Really, it's about awakening feelings it's about sharing pain and being honest and open about feelings i mean look at the the metallica did a wide range of something i mean like um nothing else matters i mean that's a that's a one amazing love song right Mm -hmm. and you get some of the uh, some of the other songs that if you if you want to look at them up closely are songs that that represent the soul of their processing their lives like all artists do really and and if the sound of it is compelling and attractive to those of us who like that kind of a sound, and the message is still the same. It's a it's a it's a way to connect with people. Mm. And Metallica is going to go on forever as long as they want to, because they resonate. They provide a safe vehicle for um, people who are processing pain. And also love. I mean, and, and pain can be, we can consider pain love if you really want to get sophisticated about it. So this is, 
um, for all of us out there, I mean, this is a, to me, a great discussion. I know that it, when, in the movie, when we saw some of the tension between Lars and James, especially, but we, the, the, I knew, and I know, I know, I knew then, I know now that these, these people love each other, mm -hmm. deeply, deeply love each other, deeply, deeply love each other. And to be able to, to do what they do, they had, the love has to be the, the driving force. To see the one of my favorite Metallica moments in history, and it's a small moment in terms of time and space, but so massive, is when they were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh -huh. And there was a moment where, uh, you know, James, who, who we all know, it has the most trouble. Of, I mean, both of them, you know, it's like they, in their own ways, as expressive and, and hyperverbal as Lars is he doesn't necessarily have an easy time expressing the emotional side and the vulnerability and to see them on stage during that uh, induction ceremony, there's a moment where James literally physically embraces Lars and thanks him in yeah. front of all the world and picks yeah, him up off of his feet. And it's just, ah, oh, man. Yeah. It's, uh, wow. <laughs> and it's because we know how hard that is for both of them. And, and we, and we see that, you know, there's there's a great moment. Um, you know, obviously, it's hard not to get right into the movie, but uh, you know, of course, the, the famous Torben Ulrich, um, you know, has become legendary, right? right? From just a couple of scenes in that film. Well, I was I was struck by I was listening to, I guess, a few years ago. It was maybe an anniversary. There was some kind of bonus material that came out from the film, and there was commentary where the it was the band now watching a few key key scenes and here you have james and lars watching the scene with lars and his dad the whole the famous delete yeah scene. yeah right and but you hear james asks lars you know that's that's your dad you know huge figure in your life obviously um how does that make you feel when he's saying that and it's interesting Lars really brushes it aside pretty quickly. He's, you know, <laughs> oh, and, and, and that was a moment where it sort of reminded me like, man, as, as open as, as so many ways, Lars is ostensibly the most open person in the band to the fans and into the other guys and whatever hearing just in that little moment where James is really digging, digging there. And, and Lars is, the wall is up, you know, oh, it's, it didn't bother me. You know, it's fine or whatever he said, I'm paraphrasing him, but it's just really interesting. It reminds you that it's not, it's not always as simple as it seems when you think, Oh, Hetfield, the, the guarded, uh, tightly wound person that doesn't want to talk about feelings. And then Lars, the guy who wants to get everything in the open, it's just like this little moment where it's like, Oh, it's comp people are complicated. We all have a lot more to us. than So character the, the, just by asking that, I mean, by re replaying that, you can see and attach, or I can see and offer you to think about it this way. As you've been able to share so intimately today, you can look at, at within relationships where there, that you have now and have had, even making a healing with, with your, your dad or whatever, you can, you, can, you can see the part of you that is so able now to be able to love regardless of what is coming back to you or not. Mm. Okay. Mm. There's an unconditionality to you, Ryan, that I see it a couple ways. One is in your personal life. Now, if there are people that you have 
right now that you need to bear hug and lift them up and just say, I love you. Or I just want to like call you and tell you, I love you, man, or whomever it is that that's important for you because that's your, obviously your mission is the, is the love driven part of that. Mm-hmm. Then the other piece is I feel like from this moment forward in this, in this interview and stuff and in any subsequent stuff, you could even ask more intimate questions. Mm. You can, and cause you can ask from a place of love and loving curiosity. And I know you, I haven't listened to your to, to other interviews and, and I'm going to do that, but I know that you will, there's a part of you cause you have to continue to evolve. I have to continue to evolve. I'm never stopping my growing. Okay. I, I, that, that would, I would die if I did that. Okay. So trust me, you have this, you're, you're unleashing this loving part of you now that is going to allow you in your personal and professional life to be even more intimate because you're able to see specifically there is no danger. Hmm. See, what you've, what you've done is decontaminate the negativity that you were talking about that you saw yourself growing, growing up in. There is no such thing as that. The illusion is that the pain and suffering that we do is bad and it must be anesthetized or avoided mm. or even therapeutized. Okay. Cause sometimes that's one of the reasons why I left psychotherapy because I felt like we tried to, we tried to get people back to even mm. No, all of the pain and suffering we do is part, as I was saying earlier of an opportunity to incorporate and move forward. And now you look back on your, you can, if you want, you can look back on your life and you can be, see the blessing of all of that. Hmm. certainly you'll see your mom and what she went through. Wow. Secretary lupus, all of the struggles you have great admiration for her and what she, how she struggled, but you can look at the, um, the enemies or the oppositionals or the, um, the people that we, we, I'm speaking to all of us. We can look at all of the characters in our movie and see that they played a role and we can love them for it. And thank you for gifting me Hmm. with that further development of insight right this moment, brother. Thank you for that. Wow. Wow. Um, that is, <laughs> that is so profound what you were saying about, wow. Yeah. About the difference between that idea of getting to even, cause this is something, and it's funny, I do, um, another podcast, uh, <laughs> called no prize from God, which is conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief and everything between. And, wow. the, and the, the elevator, uh-huh pitch for that one is is just that um in the religion and spirituality category in apple Podcasts, like they say make the thing that you wish existed i i, I noticed that it's predominantly right-wing evangelicalism uh militant atheism and some sort of self-help stuff and again not a value judgment on any of those things mm-hmm. they, they all ha- exist in their space but I thought, well, where's these conversations for those of us who aren't coming from any of those point of views necessarily? And for me as a journalist and as a fan of music and cinema, I've encountered so many musicians, so many filmmakers who have interesting things to say and life experiences in regards to faith and spirituality from all sorts of perspectives that there aren't many conversations about. So I've created that as a place where I've had... Uh, you know, film directors and authors and mostly musicians and a lot of them from the metal world, because that's my world, uh, talking about um, the faith traditions they grew up in and the things they struggled with and 
um, what they've learned and, and who they are and where they draw from. And it's something that comes up for me that I've learned through those conversations uh, is uh, I've gotten really into the work of this guy named Peter Rollins, who's a, a theologian. Uh, I'll, I'll send you some, some of his stuff. Cause I, I think you'd be interested in it, but his, his, his work is all about, yeah. Like, just as you said, I mean, you put it so that's uh, amazing. The thing about getting to even, we're all trying to get to even. We're all trying to fill this hole. We're all trying to be complete. And his work is so much about um, the divinity uh, is it, is in the details. It's in the messiness. It's in the dirtiness yeah, and the I'm pain. Nice and that, the, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. That it's all that it's all part. And that's something that I've learned. This is you know not to go on a whole other track, but this whole spiritual track that I've been on in my whole life. I spent most of my life in search of certainty. And trying to figure out, well, where's the answer? Who, which religious tradition, which sect of which faith has the answers for me so I can be certain and I can know the truth and I can then aspire to live by whatever the guidelines are to be on that correct path. And then I've, I've, I've gotten so much fulfillment in recent years. And by recent, I mean like the last five or six in the acceptance of uncertainty and of not understanding and of living in this place of, I don't know, nobody knows, not from a nihilistic sort of hippy dippy. Oh, who cares? I know, I know, I know. But yeah, but more of like, I know that's part of it. Like trying to grasp something you can't hold is that's the whole, you know, it's so uh, sort of, you know, simplistic. That's beautiful. Say. I, I, I just, I wrote a poem not that long ago. I'll send it to you called trusting uncertainty or trusted uncertainty. And, and it's, and it's about my evolution there too, but it's about, it's about embracing uncertainty and rather than trying to make it into certainty, right? Yeah. You're talking about the journey versus destination and yeah. your journey, my brother, just listening to what you're, you're just snippets of it. Your journey is amazing. I mean, look at all the richness of all that you've gone through to get to this place and look how generous you are by you know giving people the opportunity, like I said earlier, to share, like you have given me the opportunity to talk about some things today, and you do that with your guests, and and people are the audience gets blessed by that, and they get things, pieces of something for their lives. So you're definitely an ambassador, and you're and the at the University of Downey at Downey University. That's where you that's where you study, and that's and that's your. The, the source, the major source, which includes all of these painful, not all of these, but some painful moments, right? Some shitty times. Absolutely. Ostensibly shitty times. But, but what now is you're, you're, you're showing, like I said before, you're making it clear that there is no such thing as shitty times. I mean, I understand that's a little yeah. extreme. I don't want to get overly literal with people who are going to of say, course. yeah, well, you know, this is something, this happened or, my, my wife died suddenly or something like that. Of course, that is horrible. And we, in order for us to gather that issue and move it forward and heal, we have to own the pain. Okay. So there's no, no leapfrogging, no anesthesia here, no yeah. stepping over something to get something to a result that's, that's supposedly better. We have to go through those. The more we embrace it and the more we get engaged that pain, the more we're able to convert it into something worthwhile. Yeah. There's a, the there's more a, we distance ourselves, the less we are. There's a great quote that, of course, I'm going to butcher, 
maybe I'll fix it in the show notes. <laughs> but uh, I think it's I no, think you it's, won't. <laughs> no, I won't. Yeah, it's messy. Let's, let's let's stick with messy. Go ahead. I I think it's I think it's Kierkegaard. Uh, but it, it's a quote about life isn't a isn't a problem to be solved it's you know it's a thing to be experienced yeah um and and that was yeah so transformative for me and it's the kind of stuff that if you'd put it in front of me when i was you know 25 i would have said oh this is gobbledygook (laughs) you know this is what is this nonsense um give me give me give me some truth give me a you know and, and, and then realizing just getting older and, and meeting more people and having conversations like this one, not that a common conversation like this one is common, uh, <laughs> but, but aspiring to have conversations like this one and learning. Yeah. That it's uh, it is, it's the messiness that that's where the beauty is. I don't think I don't, I, I challenge you on, I don't think it's just, you got older. Okay. I, I don't think time, I think time is overrated in terms of like time heals all wounds. Time doesn't do shit. But it's what we do with it. And I think what you have done with your life is honestly, you've interviewed yourself on a regular basis. Mm. You've had Q&A with, with Ryan Downey uh, on a regular basis. You've asked questions. You've struggled with issues. You've answered questions. You've stumbled over answers. You, you have uh, raised more questions. And that's probably metaphorically how you have come to this place where you're so good at what you're doing because of the discourse you allow yourself to have with other people, which give you more answers and, and also raise questions for your, for, you know, your questions, raise questions for me and, and inspire answers for me. And the cycle of self-exploration on a journey is the goal. The journey we're having right now is the goal. Hmm. There's not some profound answer that either one of us comes up with right. because it's never the, the answer we have, if it's doing its work, will lead me to another question. Mm. The, the, and the question is the answer, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. In that context, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, at some point after seeing the film, and I think I told you this when we first corresponded, but I, I saw some kind of monster at Sundance. Yep. Um, 2004. And I, I was, was there. Okay, uh, I was great. Yeah, I, I was. I was sent there by MTV to uh, interview someone entirely else about something entirely else, and knew that I would only be there for a couple of days, and knew that the Metallica movie was there. Um, so I went to a screening. I think it was in the morning. I ended up doing the. Uh, they had the press conference that was via satellite, or the band I think was in Hawaii, and a bunch of the press we sort of lined up there was a microphone and we lined up in a tent and each of us got one question and uh but but, but anyway my just that's a whole other story but where i'm what i wanted to ask you is um at some point years later i read the book that joe berlinger one of the film's two co-directors yep. wrote about the experience of making the film and something he talks about significantly in the book is that uh, unbeknownst to those around them he and his directing partner yes. were in the throes of their own sort of dysfunction or for lack of a better term with their relationship and he talks in the book about how being around the process of the work that you were doing with metallica was had this residual transformative effect on their relationship the two filmmakers and and how they came out of that 
experience um, much better for it than they had gone into it. And so what I wanted to ask you about, uh, without necessarily speaking specifically to, to Joe and, and Bruce, who is no longer with us, um, any more or less than you want to, but just more sort of broadly, uh, how, how often does that happen in your work where you see that folks who aren't even necessarily directly immersed in it, and of course this would expand to those of us in the audience who saw some kind of monster, but how, but, but how often does that happen then where, you, where it, there's this residual, uh, you know, benefit by osmosis or you know that it's spreading that it's not just even just you and the four people that you're specifically working with but that it's i would just ask you to to ask that question of yourself and and realize that how much you're that you there's you're you're talking with me right now we're talking with each other and there are other people that are that are benefiting from this Hmm. okay or 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 not so with the joe joe's still alive bruce died uh, Joe and Bruce, when they came in and, and the filming of the movie was probably 2000 hours, I think, or something they did and they condensed it down to two and a half or some ridiculous thing. In addition, the work that I was doing was also off camera. So in mm. the first the first three, probably three months, maybe four months um, was never on. Nobody that we had in the film hadn't started. OK. And the film was the filmmakers were originally hired by uh, Metallica's managers because the Metallica was flagging, their, you know, their popularity was flagging and, and they needed a, a jolt. So they wanted to have a film and they wanted to st- you know, stimulate some stuff. It wasn't going to be about the work with me. It was about right. promoting, okay? Yeah. Then um, I got a call when I was working with Rage Against the Machine and, um, and the, the management of Rage is the management of Metallica was. Mm-hmm. And so I, I won't go into long details about it, that, but they called no. me and said, would you, would you consider working with Metallica? So we started with Metallica. It was a separate thing without the film. Then the film, when the film started, one of the things that I did, which I really like having done is I got the film crew. The film crew became a part of the process. Hmm. They filmed us do it. They didn't film themselves, but they were in the room all the time. So that's, where the residual fallout goes. And so they were picking up some of the stuff that was going on that obviously helped them. But I also would have a download, not every time, but often enough, a download after the filming of whatever we were doing for everybody to talk about what they saw and what they experienced. To help bond the the people that were doing the production with the, the band and vice versa because that we're all part of the team, right? So that was, that was, uh, that, that doesn't answer your question directly, but it, it, no, it does the picture. Yeah. It pays the picture. So my, you know, when I left the office and, uh, and I still have, well, obviously I zoom right now. Right. But, but, but I do a lot more stuff in person on site now since Metallica, because of what I said at the beginning, and that is that there is, um, you're going to get less sanit- sanitizing more authentic in the moment, real time. And when you get real time, you get like we're doing right now, mm-hmm. there are things that come up in you and come up in me that aren't planned, that are richer than if we were, if you had an agenda of questions you wanted to ask me and I had an agenda of answers I wanted to give you. You were talking about sterilized, you know. Yes, you know. yeah. So, so for Bruce and Joe, 
Um, and I, I paid attention and I, when, uh, when I do, I go, and sometimes my wife goes with me, works with me too. But, um, when, when we go someplace, we might live with the people and mm -hmm. we might, and, and if friends come over or something, we might incorporate that in the, in the process with it, uh, management will inc incorporate things that, that are part of the experience because they also lend a uh, perspective that you don't get just from the people that are the, the clients, if you will. Sure. And uh, gosh, and that, and that makes a lot of sense, you know, when you talk about kind of the sterilization that can happen, um, you know, say you have a, a marriage, a, a couple that's in crisis, yeah, and they're going to, to speak with their counselor and not that that's a bad thing at all, but that there is a certain amount of, you know, maybe each of them is kind of preparing, you know, okay, I know I have this appointment at 4 p.m. tomorrow and here's my agenda of the things I want to get off my chest and, uh, and, and in some ways in, intentionally or unintentionally even trying to manipulate, you know, the, the goodwill hunting of it, uh, right, of all those great scenes in Goodwill Hunting where he's going with these therapists and he's, he's working the therapist until he finally gets to somebody that he trusts and opens up to. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think, I think of those scenes often because I think that's something that oh, we oftentimes in life unintentionally go to something ostensibly because it's going to be beneficial to us, but then we're sort of, or I could just only speak to myself you find that you're actually kind of trying to run it, you know? And then it's like, well, then I'm not going to get anything out of it if I'm not surrendering to it. You know, if I, if I think I know what I'm going to get. Uh, so, yeah. So I think that being on site and being immersed and having other people that are around also getting involved in the process, that seems like such a, uh, such a better approach. Well, it, it, it taught me a lot about that. Just to having, you're noticing when you're sitting there, you're noticing, uh, Lars called it the truth serum. The filming was truth serum, right? And he's right. It, it, it's interesting because you could say that people would sanitize in front of that kind of process, but it would help. It helped not to sanitize if everybody was talking about stuff and downloading, and you know, it became a family, extended family. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that that was important. As was, um, we had uh, we started a Monday night uh, family night where. It, for everybody in the, you know, the band backup people, everybody, the families would come in on Monday nights and hang out at the studio and just get to know each other better and, and you know, interact with each other. That's great. And so th I think that, that what I'm working towards in my life is oneness and, you know, unity and, and the, the kinds of things that you're talking about and love and following that theme. And so it, it, if you give people an opportunity as you do to be able to, to share like this, you and I coming out of this already, I mean, we're already connected, right? That is special. And my hope is just for the moment, I want to once again, talk to the invisible audience out there. Mm -hmm. Hope My hope is that you will experience what Ryan and I are going through in its unique way, as it applies usefully to you. Um, the, the tendency may be, um, to maybe you tuned in because you wanted to hear more about Metallica. Okay. And maybe you have, I, I often, uh, you heard Ryan talking about um, the uncertainty of life. I oftentimes try to offset uncertainty by trying to expect things. Mm. And if I start expecting things of you and you don't deliver my unspoken expectation, mm -hmm. then we wind up in a different place. 
So I'm hopeful that you can ride the wave of how today has gone mm. and that you can find something of value and ask yourself the question, why did I tune in today to be with Ryan and Phil and, and what, what's underneath my expectations of it, especially mm. if I get aggravated about it, if I get, wow, shit, I, 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 they're not talking enough about this or that, or, or yeah. this is all bullshit or whatever. Ask yourself, be, do yourself a favor and ask yourself, so what is it that I'm uncomfortable about inside myself right now mm. that I can learn? Or if you love what we're doing and you're a big fan of Ryan, ask yourself, what is it about Ryan that I, that I admire in myself? What is it about Ryan that stimulates me wanting to be a, a better version of myself? Those are the questions. And I'd love for us to have a dialogue about that. And we, we can't do it face to face right now, but that's the kind of thing that we'll all benefit from. So my hope is that, that this experience, I mean, he and I are having a good time, right? But, but I, I don't want this to be like just us having a good time. Um, I wanted to, I want us to, you know, we're both aware of your presence. Yes. And, and, and in fact, I would, I would, gosh, yes. And in fact, I would, I would go so far as to say that uh, for me, this exactly what you've just explained is the purpose of art, whether it's the medium of ah, something as simple brilliant. as a podcast brilliant. as it is movies, stories, but you know, there's of course the role that it plays in the exorcism of self that the creator gets in creating. Yes. But then in the creation, as others experience it, uh, yeah, that, that, that's what it's about is, is how you relate to it, how you identify with it, the things that you can compare and contrast about yourself and your own experience with what this artist is communicating to you. And I think that that's, yes, that's where we love something like Metallica and how Metallica can be so big is because there are so many eras and personalities within Metallica and chapters and the records that they've made that so many different folks around the world can identify with different bits and pieces of. So my relationship to Metallica is going to be completely different than someone else's. And we're going to have these commonalities of the thing. Yeah, I love that. And I love that too. And then we're going to have, you know, I often liken it to sports fandom. You know, I didn't grow up watching sports but growing up a Metallica fan, I finally understand that, you know, passionate. Uh, well, they were the best when they had this coach and, and this was the quarterback and they played this, this team. And what, you know, I understand that now because you hear that in fandom of these bands. I like this lineup. I like this album. I like this tour. I like this right. producer. I like this sound, you know, and that's the beauty of it. There isn't, there is no right answer. There is no, yes, you are correct. We're all correct because we all have our different relationship to it, and it, and it very, you know, very profound. You feel different things from it. Yeah, I, I would like to 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 adjust what you said. Uh, Please back back a little bit in this in this great spiel here. When you said something as little as a podcast, I think that's the word you used. Mm. This is big, dude. Mm. Start appreciating your band. You know, and bands you have you you're yeah. playing in three or four venues and doing yeah. some really amazing work. That is helping people do exactly what you, what you have described there. Thank you, and and I, and I know I know I can't keep you all day as much as I would love to. Um, I, I wanted to ask because I think it 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 carries right in with the theme of what we're talking about and the residual. And I love how you put it: the awareness of the audience. 
when you go into these situations, uh, and of course, you know, famously we associate you with Rage and Metallica and, and sports teams and all that, but but even just generally speaking, and you have say a group of people who are committed, even if it's at different levels, are committed to trying to do this work with you. Metallica being the the obvious example here. Um, how does it affect the process? How do you adjust your approach when you have folks who are uh, essential to the process who refuse to participate? So say in Metallica's case, of course, we would think of, of a Jason Newstead. Um, but I'm sure that that's far from an isolated case where you're brought in and they say, Hey, we, you know, here's, here's 10 That's people, right. nine of them are willing to do this. The 10th is not, but the 10th is a big part of what the nine Critical. have to deal with. Critical. That's right. Yeah. So, so there, I don't think there's a, a singular, singular truth. Um, and you, you and I believe that there's no need to be worried about a singular truth anymore. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. I think that the, the answer that I, the kind of um, multidimensional answer I would give, of course, each, each situation is unique, right? If somebody refers themselves, they're more likely to participate than someone who's referred by somebody else. Okay, in, in the case of Metallica, they were they were almost they they were crucified in, in an article in Playboy magazine mm. uh, the the couple months before we started. Mm-hmm. The, their their album sales were down. The management was concerned. The management had experienced me, so they said, "You guys got to do this." Okay. So they started in a place, and I have to say that the first session we had, I won't go into the great deal to retail of it right now, but the first session that we had, Newstead walked in and, and said, I'm, I'm quitting. That's not on camera because this is one of the things that happened three months before the, the filmmakers came in. So there was a lot of chaos, all right? And there was a tremendous amount of tension around that first session. And, um, so they, what's, what comes up in the first, what, who refers you if, you, if you feel the pain and you're uncomfortable or you feel the desire because you want to change and you know that something needs to change, you have to have the courage to initiate it. If you don't, someone else may do it for you, okay? Mm. But the closer you are to taking ownership of what it is you know you need to grow, as uncomfortable as it may seem, is the ticket of admission. And then in the session, what I look for is what where the motivation is. And what I try to do, I, I like to have a, uh, a, a session before, before to check to see whether I'm able to help mm. and to check to see whether they are wanting some help and what kind of help and whether it matches up or not. But I get a pretty good idea and they get a pretty good idea of whether we're a match or not. And if we're a match, then some of that first session when we officially start is is as uh, starts on a, in a in a better place than if I if I didn't have that, because we're both trying to audition with each other to see whether or not there's something that of value. Mm-hmm. Not everybody am I capable of helping, right? And that is that even now a splinter of my or my very uh, hard to move ego doesn't like hearing that, right? I mean, I feel like I've, 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 my ego's on the bench or, you know, <laughs> sitting in the locker room. So I'm not, but, but I think, you know, there's a part of me that has confidence and also desire to help people. And I feel like it's a spiritual, you know, it's like, a, like this is, it's a divinely inspired event. 
So I, of course I want to do this, right? But I might find that I'm not able to help and we might have to terminate earlier. They may have to fire me or whatever. So that, that's the kind of thing that you have to pay attention to in my work. At the same time, there's, uh, if the commitment is strong enough from them and the commitment is, str is strong enough for me, then we can overcome the resistance that you would expect that we all have to the change we say we want, okay? I mean, we know we need to change it. How often, how many times in my life have I known I, that something was bothering me physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and I waited until it was hammering me mm. you know, before I did anything about it, mm. right? So I think that people are a little bit more amenable to going to get help. And if they recognize that, when, when this is an important part of it, I don't do, I, what I do is provide them with the opportunity to help themselves. Mm. I provide them with the opportunity to, um, they, they control the process, if you will. And I'm here to help them come up with their own answers. You know, you, I mean, we were talking today and a lot of things came up in me that, that I shared that mm -hmm. give me insights to myself. You got insights into yourself. Mm -hmm. They're things that we're leaving each other with here and, and taking away from each other. And that's a blessing. So that's the process. It's the same thing as you said at the very beginning. It's conversational. It is not agenda driven. Mm -hmm. Somebody could come in and say, I've got a, a serious problem with X or Y. And we would, we would not go, okay, here are the steps that you have to do. We would explore what X and Y mean. We would, we would try to get, the person would get a, a, they would talk themselves into a framework, a history. They would see how this is applying to their daily lives and the problem and how, and that would give them more incentive to want to do something different about it and feel safe doing it because they want to, what we want is for people to be uncomfortable enough, but also feel like they can trust that the process is something that they will be in charge of with my support. Mm. My wife is our support. Uh, and so that, that is huge in terms of the, helping the resistance, converting the resistance. Yeah. Because I, when people are in pain, they don't want to have more pain, right? Mm -hmm. But, the, you know, sometimes they start, when you start to crack it open, you feel shittier in that moment, mm -hmm. you know, temporarily. If you got anyway, to re-break the nose to set the nose right. Oh, that's know? good. Yeah, well, right. That's it's good. A, they're in pain, but sometimes yeah. there's more. That's very, that's a, just don't listen to a listener. You're tuning in and if you listen, <laughs> X out the 10 minutes I just spent on this piece. No, you. don't. And, Please and, don't. And, this is what I, I mean. And just cut straight to Downey's, you know, nose breaking thing. No, you, that was perfect. I was I will thank you. I I, I was going to ask you actually, and, and we can um, we can wrap with this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you if uh, what some of the most common things you hear because this is backing up quite a bit. Um, when I was at MTV, I was in the uh, Santa Monica office, and you know, people. I grew up in Indiana. I've been in California twenty years, doing what I do, and you know, friends back home will will, will sometimes ask, you know, oh, you know. What, what, what celebrities do you run into? Who have you seen out and about? And one thing I love telling fellow Metallica and, and metal fans is that I saw you walking down the sidewalk in Santa Monica one day. And it was, it was such a moment of familiarity that it was, and this was years ago, but it was a moment. You, you where, actually saw me walking in Santa yeah, Monica? Yeah. I, I, I'm 90% sure it was you. Yeah, it probably um, was. But I mean, I'm just trying to think about when. 
yeah, this, oh gosh, it would have been somewhere between obviously post 2004. Um, but gosh, I, I couldn't tell you what. Well, year it's not, it was. That's how cool that you, that you but said. Yeah, well, that. well, and one, and one, the, the familiarity of it was that in seeing you, there was a moment of, uh, oh, I know this person. And it wasn't like, oh, this is someone from a movie or this is someone in a band or it was, oh, it was like you. a, that's like a, really a nice family problem. member or yeah. something, yeah, you know, like, yeah, problem. it was thank like, yeah. is that, yeah, like it felt like, is that an uncle I haven't seen in a long time, you know? And then right, I, right. and then I went, oh my gosh, that's Phil from some kind of monster. Um, but my, 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 my question to you, my reason bringing up that anecdote is, uh, and from my own experience, knowing that I was coming to this conversation with you, uh, what is the most common thing you hear from Metallica fans when they recognize you out and about back when we were all able to be out and about and they say, Hey, aren't you the guy? And uh, but, 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 but what is it they, they want to say to you? What do they want to ask or what are they, you know, what's the, the common, because for um, me, I, I knew in talking to you, uh, I almost felt, you know, I felt a little bit of guilt coming into the conversation because it's like, I, Man, it's really hard to resist the urge to try to get some free <laughs> therapy Dude, out of you. I mean, you know, you thank, know? You. thank you. Well, so I think I think Ryan, um, it's really hard to say. I mean, the people that don't come up to me that are pissed off at the way that that I am in the movie, uh, they're probably a lot of those people. Nobody's trashed me uh, directly that I can remember. But they're, you know, the people that ask the questions are are, are the pretty much the thing they say is they thank you for for being a part of the process. And, yeah, and I, I bet. I think that, I and because I, I, and I have such deep love and respect for the band, um, the guys, their their families. I mean, they're just amazing human beings. It's, and it, every bit is as, as sharp and as wonderful as you would imagine them to be with their own human personalities. You know, some of the things you talked about, about the permanent personalities. So I love them dearly and their families and stuff. So the, the memories of that experience, when somebody asks me, uh, I know how important it is for the fans who are so dedicated because they've been so moved by Metallica. You know, I mean, just to be in a concert and watch, you know, on side stage and, and you know, see people respond to them. There's a kind of loving devotion that, is not how shall I say it? it's sometimes you see a crowd like that being able to be grateful for its capacity to be angry or just capacity to say fuck it you know fuck yeah. you fuck, you know whatever and I get that but there's such a, there's such a loving admiration for them mm. that that just redefines or reinforces what you and I were talking about earlier about the force of love and how important that is. And watching, yeah. you know, when you when you, you reminded me of, of, of uh, James lifting up Lars at mm -hmm. the ceremony I was there, it's like, um, it's just, that's what I want to see. And, and the, the poster I have, see on the wall there, the poster in the back there, Metallica mm -hmm. poster, that's the one, that's, I don't know where it is, take what it's taken, but see them at the end of the, the concert, arms mm -hmm. around each other. That's mm -hmm. what it's all about. So the fans feel that. The fans, uh, you know, appreciate the the music lives on because the the relationship between the fans 
and the passion about what Metallica does with them and for them, and Metallica's appreciation for the fans. They, they're very de devoted to their fans. They care deeply about their fans. They and that's the kind of thing that, that comes up for me when somebody mm -hmm. comes to me. It's like, wow, I'm honored that you came up to me to thank me for my participation in uh, a, a, with a with a, um, a revolution. Well, you know, with a, with with some people who who are who have changed the world. They yeah, drain they drain the pus for a lot of people, give an outlet for a lot of yeah. anger and frustration, but they have also um, spread the word, spread the love. Mm. Absolutely. Well said, of course, as always. And yeah, I, uh, I I can tell you as a journalist and doing these podcasts and things like that, you know, that film is a, a reference point that comes up often uh, when talking to particularly musicians, but also filmmakers about interpersonal relationships, about conflict, about resolution, about uh, all of this sort of stuff. And time and time again, you know, the things that I hear the most often are how brave it was to put all of that out to the public. That's true. And, and, true. and the second thing I hear the most often is how much folks identify with things that go on, things that were said that, you know, that were especially guys in bands, everybody, everyone in a band exactly right. sees that movie and says, man, I thought it was just us, you know, that's, it's so, and yeah, and that's the storytelling. That's the sharing. That's the, the relationship. You know, the courage that took Ryan for them to do that. And of course they didn't know what they were getting into because they originally the film crew, as I said, was hired for promotional purposes. Yeah, like a, just your typical making but of the album kind of thing. It's just, yeah. they walked into something, we all walked into it. So, and, and it, you know, it, it was, it's a beautiful, it, it's a, as I said, a life-changing experience for me. I'll never forget it. Be forever grateful for, for, for them and, and for that experience and for everybody that participated in it. And I so appreciate you, man. I so oh, appreciate, man. I appreciate Likewise. who you are and what you do and how you do it. I really do, and you and and I hope that that and I hope that we uh, we've done we've served the audience out there the best we can, and uh, we hope that that's useful for them as well because uh, this is not Ryan's show. This is your show. Oh, hundred um, percent. And I know you absolutely. know that. And I know. Oh, and I absolutely. No, and this is. Uh, I mean, this was everything that I would have. Uh, you know, you talked about expectations, and I, I came into the conversation without specific expectations either. I suppose more so than most an emotional expectation and you have delivered uh, 110% uh, okay. everything I could have, could have hoped for yet. And, and I'll leave you with this. I, I did some freelance writing in the summer of 2004, 2005, maybe even, I don't know if you remember premier magazine. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I wrote the, some kind of monster review for, for premier. That was my, really? my five well, star. Cool. Cool. <laughs> so my little bit it, it's one of these things when something moves you so much that's also my impulse and this brings us full circle too is i want to help right so when i see a film when i sat there at sundance watching this i want to evangelize i want sure. i want i want people to see this movie and get from it something like i got from it and and then it's like well how can i help well, I, well if i can review it for premiere that's my little Beautiful. tiny you know and, no it's not tiny it's not it's <laughs> 
rascal of dogs that is not trying. Yeah, exactly. Supporting you in that statement (laughs) emphatically. Yeah. And well, and if that's something that, you know, if I can take a a page out of your book um, to communicate to the audience, if that's something people can take away from listening to a conversation like this one, uh, how can I help? Um, Beautiful. yeah, Yeah. That's, that's all I hope we can put out there. So, well, Phil, thank you so much for doing this, man. This is, uh, Thank you so much as well. Appreciate it. If it wasn't Zoom, I'd love to give you a hug. So you got uh, it. We got uh, a virtual hug. And thank thank your wife and thank Rascal for uh, loaning you to me for this last hour. (laughs) And um, thanks. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you the same. Keep me posted on how how it goes and and. uh, most most definitely, and I have a, and I have a couple yeah. things I want to send you. Even. Yeah, so I'll, super. I'll, yeah, I'm going to send you your inbox. I think about it. Too. Please, right, please man. do. Thanks, Thanks Phil. Bless you, man. Take care. Thank you. Bless you too.